Hey guys, welcome back to the Revive Struggle podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Lauren Colenzo Semple on the show for the first time. It probably won't be the last time, though. I can pretty much guarantee that. I first came across Lauren as the Mass Research Review, which is run by our friends Eric Helms, Greg Knuckles, and Mike Zordos, introduced her, oh, sorry, the Erics, I should say. I had Erics down in my notes here, and I introduced them as just Eric Helms. Uh, Also, Eric Trexler, he is also there. They're not the same person. Uh, And they introduced her as taking place of Greg back in March 2023 of this year. And uh, knowing the type of person who would be able to take the place of someone like Greg would be incredibly intelligent, well-educated. I knew she'd be a perfect guest for the podcast. And of course, I've been reading her work as it's been coming out in each monthly review as well. She is currently pursuing her PhD under the mentorship of Dr. Stu Phillips in integrative physiology. Her research focuses on the impact of exercise, nutrition, and hormones on skeletal muscle. And let's be honest, this discussion did not disappoint. It was fantastic talking to Lauren. We talked about some subjects that haven't been touched on on the podcast before. And I think they're incredibly important and very pertinent for particularly female trainees, dieters, but also any males that coach them or are friends with them and wanna be able to help them out and just have an understanding, a further understanding of the things that are happening as women go through their menstrual cycle, the impact of oral contraceptives and all these sort of variables. Now guys, this podcast only grows by you subscribing, giving us comments, sharing it over on Instagram or with your friends and family, anyone you think might be interested. So please give us some love, give us a review over on Spotify. We appreciate every single one of you. Thank you so much for your time. Let's jump right into the show. Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Lauren Colenzo Semple on the show. I have to make sure at first that I pronounce that double-barreled last name correctly because I noticed uh, sometimes people like to chop a little bit out because people mispronounce it too many times. But is that right, Lauren? That's right. Oh, good. Um, And perfect. So yeah, to to dig right into things, I think it'll be useful for the audience to get to know you a little bit because as I said off air, I think you're someone who I'll probably bring on several times, hopefully. Um, I love a kind of repeat uh, kind of guest because I think uh, there's a lot of value that each of those people can bring. And I think you're someone that I'll probably bring on several times. So I'd love to kind of get the audience to know you a little bit more. And to start with kind of what got you interested in kind of where you are today um, in the field, people will see, but obviously it's like an iceberg. You only see the tip and there's so much to go behind. Kind of what got you interested in health and fitness and kind of taking that route of education and obviously uh, working in that field? I always grew up and being a physically active person. I was a dancer and gymnast, actually, and I ran track in high school. Um, I really got into lifting after my undergraduate degree, which was actually not in exercise science. Um, I have an undergraduate degree in psychology and nutrition. And so following my uh, bachelor's degree, I went and I got a job in kind of an unrelated business development field. And the, the gym was just a passion of mine. And I started teaching group fitness classes just for fun. And it ended up being a, you know a bigger and bigger personal interest for me and that's when I started getting into the science and reading articles from people like Brad Schoenfeld um, and I should mention I was in New York City so um, he was kind of up the road from me sort of and I ended up leaving my day job and 
moving into personal training full-time and, and still teaching the group fitness as well. And I reached out to Brad and asked if I could volunteer in his lab. And so while I was working in, in New York City as a trainer, I would go up a couple of times a week and just kind of see what it was like to be in a lab and, and help with a study. And I really enjoyed it and decided that it was something that I wanted to dig deeper into. And so that's when I decided to go back to school for a master's degree. And I went to study with Bill Campbell at the University of South Florida in Tampa and did that for two years. And uh, in between the, the, the two academic years, I spent a summer interning with Andy Galpin at uh, Cal State Fullerton because I wanted to get into some more wet lab work and and really understand what it was like to to see biopsies and actually work with muscle tissue as opposed to doing the more translational research that people like Brad and, and Bill Campbell do. And then I decided to take it one step further and go for the PhD. So for the past four years, I've been in Hamilton, Ontario at McMaster University working with Stu Phillips. And when I first got interested, especially when I went back to school for my master's, I was very interested in kind of female-specific research or sex-based differences. And that's something that Bill Campbell was was very supportive of. Uh, he's done a lot of, of studying women over the years. And I, I wasn't quite aware of, of some of the areas that, that really needed to be delved into at the time. It was just a sense that there wasn't enough research in women. And so, you know, throughout this journey, I've, I've learned more and, and been given access to, um, you know, great mentors and uh, better and better resources and the, develop the skills and, and the freedom to kind of explore more specific questions when it comes to uh, women in exercise science research. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, name drops because uh, the, all those four individuals, uh, people I highly respect, all of them have been on the podcast, if not once, several times. And yeah, it's amazing to have been able to study un under those individuals. In fact, I, I think I saw a um, Instagram post from you where you described kind of some recommendations you have for people when they're trying to seek out mentorship because uh, people might see that and they'd be like, oh yeah, you just like, I don't know, winged it or you were lucky, but I think you actually like, you had a thought out process for discovering those people, right? I did. And I think it's, once you do have an opportunity to meet someone, it's really important to foster that relationship and um, kind of learn from them, but also do whatever you can to provide value as well. Uh, because that has really been, um, the the way that I, that I've developed those relationships and and have been able to keep them over the years. Uh, so I've I've been I've been really fortunate, honestly. You know, once I had the relationship with Brad, he kind of put in a good word for me when I said I was interested in um, in studying with Bill. When I I think I reached out to Andy completely on my own because I didn't. No one I currently knew had a relationship with him. I think he posted on social media that he was looking for someone to come out for the summer. And um, I mean, it, it was kind of a crazy thing to do, but I was very motivated to leave Tampa for the summer because the weather's terrible. Right. And um, the weather in Southern California is beautiful. So, it, um, yeah, so anyway, you know, we had a chat and then we kind of connected and I ended up doing some 
work in the wet lab and also helping him with some nutrition course development and, and doing a bit of guest teaching for him as well. And, uh, you know, we're, we're still, you know, keeping in touch over the years and I'm you know re- really grateful for all the opportunities that I've had to, to learn from, from all of these people over the years. And I think do I met at a conference. Uh, so it's been, it's been kind of a mix, but I think that whenever you're trying to develop a, a mentor mentee relationship, it is important not to just reach out and ask for something um, and to, to show that you've, you know, something about them and their work and you've done a little bit of your homework. And not only am I asking something of you, but I'm offering to to bring something to the table, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's great advice in terms of not just coming and kind of wanting something from someone, but also being there and able to provide something for them too. Uh, It makes me actually think about when I, especially when I was initially starting the podcast and I was getting guests on. And thankfully, lots of the people like Brad, uh, I'd met in person, Eric Helms, I'd met in person, been to their seminars, engaged with them. They obviously knew I was then invested, but if I hadn't, kind of seen them face to face and kind of put myself out there and networked. I'm not sure uh, they're, they're great people. So they probably would still come on, but um, I can definitely see how some people are like, Hey, like, who's this person? Like they're taking an hour of my time. What am I going to get for that? And now I'm happy that I can possibly bring someone on who's lesser known or even, and like the podcast has grown thanks to all these amazing guests where I can now provide them like a platform to spread their work or um, spread that knowledge. And it's amazing. And, but you probably would agree a lot of the people in this space, including yourself are very giving and just willing to like share knowledge and uh, very kind in that way. Yeah. I think we're very appreciative when people care about our work and, and want to bring attention to our work because Science is a slow and, and difficult process that is sometimes underappreciated. <laughs> um, and so the more we can share that and um, and explain it in a way that people can understand and use, then I think it's a win for everybody. So platforms like this are really important for both the scientist and the fitness community. Yeah, I think it. I think I've spoken to some scientists, including uh, people like yourself, who it's somewhat frowned upon, almost, or had been frowned upon as like academics and scientists to be on social media and kind of sharing that work. Is that right? Have I got that angle right? Has that shifted? I think it's shifted to a point. Um, I I remember when I was in Tampa, uh, Bill Campbell was pretty fearful that the university might kind of look down on that. And I I thought, well, I don't know that that makes a lot of sense because more attention on him is more attention, 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 diversity in the department and more interest in, uh, in people attending potentially. And so I encouraged him to think about it some more and now of course he's been able to grow quite the the social media platform um i think that using twitter is or x sorry um oh, yeah. is still like the most um kind of common platform for scientists just because it's it's quicker and you don't have to worry about the visuals but there are still 
tons of, of people who are not on social media and really don't have an interest in being on social media. And so that's why I think when, when you think of the community that, you know, your listeners would know and that the guests that you have on regularly, it's kind of a niche group. And that, that is where the intersection of people who are, or have done science and are wanting to be science communicators as well. Yeah. Science communicators is exactly what I was kind of thinking there. And yeah, it's, it's a challenging position to be in. And I imagine sometimes, um, maybe more now, but, uh, I sometimes see it, it particularly on like Brad Schoenfeld's posts for some reason, people are always having a go at like the, the studies and kind of, uh, essentially just having a complete ignorance to science and how that all runs and the difficulties and what goes into it, the costs, uh, all those sort of factors. So I can see why some scientists might be like, Hey, I just haven't got time for this sort of thing. It's not worth the effort, um, potentially for them. Social media is hard for a lot of people anyway. So <laughs> I can see that. Well, it's true. You know, you're you're already uh, opening your up to opening yourself up to criticism when it comes to applying for grant money and ethics approval and submitting a paper and peer review. And you know, you finally feel like you accomplished something, and then you share it online, and then you get a whole bunch <laughs> of criticism there too. For sure. And I think, uh, I don't know if I'm right in saying this, you were obviously, you did your group coaching or group classes, sorry, which I commend you for because I did a couple of those when I was one-on-one PTing and they were not my thing. They were very hard. Uh, But um, you also, I think are a coach now at Stronger by Science. Have you been, uh, are you still coaching? Were you coaching throughout that time? How long have you been kind of uh, coaching one-on-one with people? Yeah, I transitioned to an online coaching style when I moved from New York to Tampa to to do the master's degree. So I've sort of maintained a handful of of distance clients since then. And I started coaching with Stronger by Science, I guess when I moved here. So that would have been about three or four four years ago. And currently I'm I'm in a place where I, I don't do a ton of coaching just because I, I don't really have the the bandwidth when I'm writing up my thesis. <laughs> um, but it's always something that I like to do a little bit of, or whether it's a, uh, you know, nutrition only or training only, or whether it's kind of a one-time consult, I do like to kind of keep one foot in the, the fitness coach arena, because I think the longer you spend in the lab and the more academically focused you get, it's easy to forget the bigger picture of why you got into this in the first place or how this is applicable to the the, the broader uh, fitness community. And so I, while a lot of what I do in the lab is very interesting from a, a scientific perspective or a mechanistic perspective, it's not necessarily actionable um, or translatable at this moment to the the exerciser or the coach. And so I, I do like to make sure that I'm kind of appreciating both and that I'm able to speak to both audiences. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think it's really important 
too. I think it, it makes, again, as a science communicator, it makes you even better at that because you have that extra experience. When we think about evidence-based practice, it's not just the research. It's obviously your own client experience, your personal experience as well. So I can definitely see that. And I'm, yeah, I, I, I can see the value in kind of keeping contact with people there. In terms of your own background, uh, I don't think you've competed in like a physique competition before. What, what's your kind of training background look like? What, what do you do nowadays? I, I never competed. I did think about it, but just never kind of pulled the trigger. Um, but I was after I was, well, I was a runner initially and I got a really bad stress fracture and I was in a boot for three or four months and it was just brutal. And I've basically never run again. <laughs> and so, but it was at that time that I got into resistance training because I needed to do something that was lower impact and I just loved it. And, um, uh, it was, I, I really kind of caught the, the bug for it and, looked at it from a, from a uh, kind of went in waves of really focusing on more of a powerlifting style approach and then waves of focusing on more of a physique enhancement approach. But I, yeah, I, I never really took it to the, to the competitive realm. Is there any, uh, one thing that's put you off competing? Like, is there, cause I, I know for women, it's, it's a little bit of a different ball game for women. I think it's a, a bigger decision than I think some people underestimate that. Yeah, well, I think from from the powerlifting side of things, I was always prone to kind of nagging injuries. And so it just, uh, I, I felt like the sacrifice wasn't going to be worth it because, you know, I'm, I'm decently strong, but I wasn't going to make a huge splash. It would have been just doing it for the experience. Um, and I have mixed feelings about the physique competitor side of things for women um the the more i've seen in the space of the 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 issues with body image um the long-term food issues that you can sometimes see coming out of it i think you can do it in a you know an intelligent way and you can approach it as mindfully as, as possible but given the the standards of kind of leanness that that is required these days which i think is increasing and increasing over the years it it it's concerning to me that the the position that that women can be put in and i think that it ends up with some competitors ending up losing interest in lifting altogether and that is that it's just a really unfortunate outcome from something that should be a positive experience that then can become a, a bit of a negative experience. And I, I I'm not somebody who has done it, and so I, I obviously can't speak from the personal experience. But I do know that whenever you kind of take it to that next level, it it doesn't you're not doing it for fun anymore. When I was a gymnast growing up, I remember, you know, you get to the point where you either are competitive and you're, you go six days a week and they're extremely mean to you and they weigh you. And um, it went from something that I really enjoyed to something that I ended up hating and never wanting to do again, because it kind of turned it into a, a this really high pressure job instead of a hobby. 
yeah, I, I respect that a lot. And uh, again, like I said, I, I have mixed feelings about the kind of female side there. And I think very similar to you that, yes, it can be done in as safe a way as possible, but it's the, the uh, negative outcomes can definitely be greater for females versus males. We just can be beaten up a little bit more and recover a little bit easier. So I have an easier time kind of knowing, putting through a guy through this, but seeing kind of uh, menstrual cycle loss for a female, it, it's hard to see that. And like, I'm kind of deep within this space too. And I do see quite a lot of women seem to be burnt and they kind of come out the other side and maybe have a bit of a distaste for the sport at that point. And again, like you said, maybe they fall out of love with the whole process and they lose that kind of healthy aspect of it because they took it to some extreme and the pendulum maybe swings the other way. So I can definitely respect uh, your decision not to, because I think some people also glorify it and they're like, hey, like I... I'm so interested in this space and like all my friends do it and peers do it. So I'm just going to jump in, but uh, yeah, it might not be the right call for you for many of the reasons that you outlined. Yeah. I think you just need to be mindful of, of yourself and of per perhaps if you can foresee certain components of it being problematic for you in the future. And in some cases you can't foresee that and it, and it just, and it just happens. But I think that if if you are somebody who struggles with body issues or body image um, in any way, or you can see that, oh, like maybe I would have some disordered eating tendencies, any kind of inkling of that, I think is a bit of a, of a sign that you should be careful um, and, and maybe, maybe opt out <laughs> because there's plenty of other ways to en enjoy lifting without competing yeah that's always the standpoint i come from it's like i don't lift to compete i compete because i lift and it's just like a fun thing that i can do now and then fun in quotation marks kind of like there are elements that i enjoy at least and yeah i think it's also useful at least from my experience with uh, taking some females to stage it's like maybe even ahead of time thinking about what your boundaries are in terms of pushing things and how long you're willing to kind of maybe be without a menstrual cycle because when you're in the thick of it and you've got like, don't know, you're seeing the condition, you can get really wrapped up in that. And then it's been, I don't know, it could be a long period of time before you're actually at good health. And then, I don't know, women end up competing every year and then it's uh, kind of starts to become a nightmare. So uh, yeah, I, again, like I said, I can respect that. And I think it's making an informed choice is essentially what you're sort of saying here is like don't just jump into it with like some random coach and hope that it's all going to go smoothly like do your research a little bit about what you're going to uh, go through yeah absolutely and i think you've really you hit the nail on the head with the frequency of competing that is can be really problematic and the um the desire to stay lean all the time and the just a kind of approaching it from a, oh, I get here and then I can stay here, right? Like this is my new physique. Um, and that that can be a, a psychologically difficult position to be in. And there are unfortunately a lot of coaches in the space who just don't prioritize their athletes' mental health and um, long-term sustainability. Um, in the sport or just you know health in general I think yeah absolutely and 
Uh, speaking of kind of menstrual cycles and uh, female uh, kind of health, that is an area, obviously, as you mentioned before, that you're deeply interested in. And I know you've done a lot of work in. And it, it wasn't something I've really seen until the last few years was this kind of, uh, again, essentially, it was like periodizing around the, the period or syncing uh, with the menstrual cycle, uh, this style of approach that people seem to think was like the optimal route for women and women should inherently train differently to men because, hey, they've got these kind of frequent hormonal changes through the month. And yeah, it makes sense to kind of try and align your training cycle with that. Uh, obviously, this is kind of an area that you've done a lot of work in. I'd love to hear um, what the science really says about this, maybe where those people are coming from. And, and then we can dig into like the practical take homes for the listeners. Sure. The idea that ovarian hormones or female sex hormones will have some sort of influence on muscle really comes from some animal work that's quite interesting. Uh, the loss of estrogen when you remove the ovaries from a rodent will decrease its uh, muscle mass or eliminate its ability to kind of maintain its current mass. And so there's that's an indication that the lack of, of estrogen is a problem for muscle maintenance and muscle growth. And in a rodent, when you attempt to restore the hormone to so essentially give it an estrogen replacement, then it restores the ability to, to grow muscle. So there's something very interesting there um, that has led us to say, well, what, is, what happens in humans? Um, and what is the, what's the, the translation there if there is one? But when we talk about the female sex hormones, we're not just talking about estrogen. We are talking about progesterone as well. And to some extent also luteinizing hormone. And when you remove the ovaries from an animal, you essentially shut off the hormone production. And so it's like lights on lights off, which is not a, uh, not something that ever happens in humans. Even when you go through menopause, it's a, it's a gradual decrease over time. It's never just today you have estrogen and progesterone and tomorrow you don't. So it's really clear that while the animal work is really interesting, it's not directly applicable to, to, to humans. And we have 10 steps to, to go through before we can even, um, say anything really similar because that's not an experiment you could ever do in a human for obvious ethical reasons. <laughs> um, so when it comes to what we know about the influence of the these hormones in humans, we look to a handful of studies that look at either a kind of acute strength performance or muscle growth over a training study. And I was really interested in adding to this body of work because it's really small. And so coming into my PhD, this is something that I kind of proposed to Stu as, um, as something that would be an interesting question to, to answer. I, it was kind of this, and then I was also interested in looking at oral contraceptives. But um, what I didn't understand that I now understand very, very well is the challenges associated with doing this kind of research. And so that's why I, I have a much better understanding of why the body of work was so small. And there are 
there are just a variety of, of challenges around scheduling, around recruitment, uh, around standardizing everything to make sure that you are truly studying what you think you're studying um, in the phase that you think you're studying it or testing somebody in. And when we look at the current body of work, it's really difficult to say, oh, there might be something here because the findings are uh, just the, the find the interpretation of the findings is influenced by really big methodological issues. And so that leaves us in a place where it's almost to say, I'm not continuing on, or building on the body of work. We kind of need to just start over and do better. And uh, that that's to say things like use uh, studying women who, who are in, the, in a, the same, studying women who are naturally menstruating alongside women who are on hormonal contraceptives. That's problematic. Um, saying that you're studying menstrual cycle phases, but not really tracking the length of the cycle and the length of the phase and making sure that you understand when a, an, a, a woman ovulates. And so you, you can determine, yes, we're in this phase or that phase. And there's a huge amount of, of variability between people. And in some cases within the same person from cycle to cycle. So these research questions need to be approached with a ton of, of methodological rigor in order for us to be confident in interpreting the findings. And so that's why at this point, I'd say there's insufficient evidence to support any of this um, and to, to suggest that it affects acute performance, to suggest that it uh, affects muscle growth over time. But I'm I'm currently doing some work on uh, to to kind of further this and develop some best practices and recommendations around improving the quality of the science so that we can get to a place where we can have a a much more robust response to this question from a scientific perspective. That makes so much sense. And yeah, I imagine when you were looking into it, like you're like, oh, Actually, all this, I can only imagine like when you look into it and you realize how many flaws there are with the previous studies because of, again, women on oral contraceptives so that they're not even uh, in a similar position to what a normal, quote unquote, normal woman would be or if they were off the oral contraceptives. And then, yeah, I mean, you don't have to know many females to know that they can be different uh, and different women obviously experience that differently too. Uh, and cycle to cycle, that can even be different. So yeah, it's, it's crazy to think that, again, people tried to put, again, every woman in a box of, uh, hey, this is how you should train across a month. And uh, that's kind of scary. And people, yeah, surely I would imagine as people were using this, they were like realized, hey, why am I backing off my training this week? And I feel fantastic. It just doesn't feel right to me. But I think sometimes people can sound so convincing with their science uh, that it feels like that is something they should do. So in terms of practicality right now for people, if it's not something that people need to worry about necessarily trying to match uh, their training to a certain phase within their training cycle, how, how do you go about it uh, in terms of practically for clients or your own training? Yeah, so I'll just clarify for the listener when we say um, cycle phase, I mean the start of your menstrual period 
to the time when you ovulate, that would be the follicular phase. And then from when you ovulate until you get your next menstrual period, that would be the luteal phase. And so these recommendations generally say, oh, during one phase, you should prioritize resistance training or push harder or increase your volume. And then during the latter phase, you should take it easy. You should do some yoga or light stretching, or you should decrease your volume. And the so, so just to kind of explain where the, the phase-based training comes from and, and what I mean to be my, when I refer to a phase. And people take this incredibly personally on the internet because some people are very... Uh, sold on the idea that this is important. And I think from a just basic strength training principles perspective, we know that in decreasing your volume every for for two weeks every month, like it it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um because if if you're doing if you're really pushing it for two weeks and then you're essentially taking two weeks of doing light physical activity and then you're restarting, you're certainly hindering your ability to make any progress. And so even if from a mechanistic perspective, there is something that that is important about these hormones, we're taking that and we're extrapolating it to mean that you should completely overhaul your training program in a way that is totally counterintuitive to everything we know about a sound training program. So I think from a practical perspective, we really need to take a step back and think under what circumstances would this make sense? And it would only make sense if there was something so anabolic about estrogen over a short period of time, over a few days, and or something so catabolic about progesterone over a, a short number of days that it was it was worth kind of doing some some drastic change and we we're certainly not there yet and i really haven't seen anyone even anecdotally explain how they're implementing it why they're implementing it and the benefits they've seen from implementing it either themselves or or with their clients so i think from from a, a scientific perspective, we have a long way to go in just exploring what these hormones do and if they might have an impact in the premenopausal condition. So when your their hormones are fluctuating regularly throughout the cycle, or if this is more relevant when we're thinking about a postmenopausal condition where the hormones are declining and perhaps, as I said, with the animal model, it's the the lack of the hormones that appears to be problematic. So that's another area to explore. Perhaps these short-term fluctuations are not meaningful when it comes to resistance training-induced adaptations, but perhaps the gradual decline of the hormones post-menopause is problematic for uh, uh, older people growing muscle and maintaining muscle later in life. So I think that's where we are from a scientific perspective. In terms of what people can do and what I would recommend for clients or what I would um, implement myself, I think we need to focus much more on the menstrual period and menstrual symptoms that might either affect your performance or affect your motivation or 
just affect your kind of comfort level and maybe you'd need to, to tweak a session or two. And when we look at women who are naturally menstruating, meaning they're not on a hormonal contraceptive, the majority of them do report experiencing menstrual symptoms, usually a day or two leading before the, the menstrual period or during the first couple of days of the cycle. So I think it's completely reasonable to adjust a training session or not train if you prefer based on those symptoms that you're experiencing or just keep track of it. If you're tracking your training anyway, then you can say, oh, you know, I'm on my period today and maybe that would affect my my scale weight, my appetite, perhaps my performance in the gym. And so then when you can look back cycle to cycle to cycle, if you can see any sort of trend in terms of um, performance decrement while you're on your period, fine. Then you can kind of delete that data just as I would delete body weight data if somebody finds, oh, for those five days, scale weight goes up. And so I think from a from a practical perspective, that's worth doing, assuming that you're already tracking your training. And then if if you're thinking, oh, you know, I really feel like this this trend is there, then go, you you know you have the data to to dig into to see if it's truly there. But I think that's not really the point. Even if it's just, you know, my performance hasn't changed, but I don't feel well, <laughs> and or I don't want to do a really heavy session, then I don't see any issue with just restructuring a couple of sessions. And it would probably just be one, maybe two. But that's very different than overhauling the whole training cycle um, and and adjusting weeks or, of, of training at a time. Do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with a the plan? Then it's time to start working with us. We at Revive Stronger offer a truly personalized coaching service. You'll get more than just an email with some macros or random cookie cutter program. With Revive Stronger, you will be the center of our attention. You will receive your own fully individualized training protocol alongside a customized nutritional strategy. We created the coaching around your needs, wants, personal preferences, and your own unique lifestyle. Every single week, we delve into your program in order to make appropriate adjustments so that we get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better, if you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change, sign up today and let's revive stronger. I think that makes so much sense. And when I first heard about kind of, uh, again, periodizing around the period or like the, the phases in this, I really thought it was because of the symptoms during menstruation that people were doing this for, because that's been my, my only experience with coaching females or knowing them was that there was just a number of days where they maybe didn't feel the best. And obviously it's different person to person and also cycle to cycle sometimes. And knowing that like is the way to then kind of auto-regulate around it, it sounds nice in a way because it's similar to how a, a man would approach it the same way if they, I don't know, just had, they were feeling sick and then 
like they just took a couple of days off and they kind of auto-regulated around that it's just unfortunate fortunate it's just life women have that every kind of month maybe that they have to like deal with and manage but it's nice knowing it's maybe like a couple of days it's not like hey you have to like overhaul your whole entire program it's like hey back off for a couple of days maybe just a couple of light sessions and you can get back into your usual training and uh just managing fatigue essentially and symptoms that you have yeah exactly and i think it's important to point out that uh when you're when you're on your period you know you're on your period like you you and you have symptoms and you feel them and you can respond but for the rest of the cycle there is no sort of subjective indication that you're in one phase or the other. And so the only way to determine, okay, I'm no longer in my follicular phase, I'm now in my luteal phase, is to take an ovulation test. So you can do that on a um, urine test or blood test. And people will do this for fertility tracking purposes. And but otherwise, you you don't know. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm in my luteal phase. Most you know, you just have no idea. There is no indication that you're in one phase or the other. And so that's just one of the other important things to point out when you see these recommendations of do this for two weeks and then do that for two weeks. You might have a much longer follicular phase than the average person, or a much shorter follicular phase than the average person, and so. Under those circumstances, it makes even less sense because you're not even doing what you set out to do. And actually, uh, I'm, you mentioned about the hormones previously, and it made me think of a similar situation with uh, men as well in terms of like if you're at slightly low or slightly high within the reference range for testosterone, it doesn't seem to have significant impact on your ability to grow muscle. It's not till like testosterone is just dropping as you're getting older. That's when it's like clearly having maybe sarcopenia and influences on that. It sounds actually... They're almost more similar, like similar, but for not for the same reason uh, for different hormones or what have you in terms of the influence on muscle growth at the moment, at least from what my understanding of what you've said. Absolutely. And just as you'll experience fluctuations in your testosterone levels throughout the day, you know, you're not physically feeling that. Um, and so that's really one of the the, the important things to point out. And uh, just as when you look at a group of men, you see a huge range of what is quote unquote normal. And as you said, their ability to, to, to grow muscle is not dictated by a, a certain testosterone level, unless we start talking about super physiological levels. But when we look at female hormones, the extent to which they fluctuate varies tremendously. And so, you know, you expect to see an increase in estrogen over the, the, the first portion of the cycle, but the extent to which estrogen increases could be just a little bit, or it could be a huge spike. And there's no indication that those who experience a higher increase would perform better or have a better propensity for muscle growth. And so that's another sign to me that we're probably putting, putting too much stock in this and also trying to generalize something that is really, really hard to generalize given the variability between people. Really well said. 
something else I've seen actually spoken about this, this is obviously the training side, but the nutritional side, I've seen people try and apply similar, kind of maybe taking a diet break at a certain time or refeeds or dieting harder at a certain period uh, during the cycles or phase, uh, trying to kind of line that up. Is that something you've looked into? Is that anything you've kind of trialed with or how do you practically go about that? Does that influence the way you diet people basically? Around their cycle phase? Yes. So what I've seen in terms of the recommendations for that has generally is you should be increasing your protein during the latter half because there is something catabolic about progesterone. And that's such a reach because what I said earlier is from a from a basic science perspective, we know a little bit about estrogen we know pretty much nothing about progesterone other than there are progesterone receptors in skeletal muscle so we went from this assumption based on the animal work that estrogen is somehow anabolic to then well if estrogen is anabolic then progesterone must be catabolic to then therefore in the luteal phase, when progesterone is high, you should train less and eat more protein. So I don't need to tell you. I mean, that's a huge leap um, from from A to, to Z. So I guess your kind of summary here is there is not significant data or uh, data to suggest that we should be changing the way that we approach our diet apart from maybe auto-regulating again, maybe again, if you're sick or you're not feeling well, you don't diet as hard those days, maybe, or I don't, I don't even know, maybe you do. Um, is that where you're kind of coming from? It's not something that someone needs to really worry too much about trying to match anything up here. I, I really don't think so because it's, it's very difficult to implement something when you don't have all of the information. And so, as I said, you could determine what phase you're in if you wanted to take ovulation tests regularly. And in my research, I have people do that. They take them uh, for a, a week, sometimes more, sometimes multiple times a day, because it's really important for me to know when they ovulate so that I know I'm testing them in the phase that I'm intending to. So <laughs> the the thing is that even if there were something there, and even if it made sense for you to do these at-home ovulation tests so you could really determine which phase you were in, you then wouldn't actually know your hormone levels cycle to cycle or phase to phase. And so it wouldn't make sense to me to say, oh, well, if I'm somebody who doesn't know what phase I'm in and doesn't know my hormonal profile, but I'm going to implement all of these nutritional changes or training changes that are supposed to be more suitable to a certain phase and hormonal profile. It, uh, it, I just, I can't get behind that for, for the average person. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess, uh, the only final thought I have on this is kind of similar to you mentioning auto-regulating training around some of the symptoms surrounding menstruation. Might be, I, I guess, some females have like higher cravings or like they, they find that time more difficult to diet and you might just go, hey, let's not push the diet as hard this period of time. And again, that's just auto-regulating based off symptoms as they arise. 
Absolutely. And I think that we we always need to point out that when it comes to science, we're reporting group averages and I'm I'm speaking to you know most people, right? And so when it comes to your subjective experience or patterns that you might see, especially during your menstrual period, because as I said, that you know when you are on your period and you know, okay, I'm attributing these symptoms to my menstrual period. These are menstrual symptoms. And that is something that is generally repeatable. And so if you can take notes of things like, you know, I I experienced fewer GI symptoms during my period, or I experienced an increase in appetite during my period, or some people will, will experience things like bloating or fatigue, um, or mood swings or lack of motivation. I mean, it's a variety of, of things. And those can certainly um, have a, a personal effect for a, a short amount of time when it comes to your lived experience, either in the gym or in the kitchen. And you can feel free to to make those kinds of, of changes or at least start to track those patterns so that you have the information to then maybe discuss with your coach and uh, and, and and make those those changes or or develop some sort of system where you can auto regulate as those come up. But that like that is a a logical kind of evidence based approach as opposed to coming at it from the other end by saying because this might be the case I should reverse engineer this whole thing and and make these wholesale changes to my program. That makes so much sense. And the final thing I think I have on this is related to, uh, you mentioned like maybe it's bad data because you're weighing in, you know, kind of you're bloated or you're holding on to water retention. And there is this kind of, uh, for the average female, they hold on to more water around that particular phase. Is that that's something I try and take into consideration when I'm coaching a female, like through fat loss is like, hey, this week we're going to see this. And so I might take longer term averages to like see that someone is in a kind of a calorie deficit or what have you. Is that something that you advise women to kind of be aware of where they like don't freak out if like this week if the weight comes up and look over the longer term trends? Yeah, absolutely. In my experience, this is something that is uh, that it, that affects some women, but not all. And the extent to which it, it changes it is also pretty variable. So there are some people who will see a, a predictable three to four pound scale weight increase for four or five days. And there are some people who will see maybe a one pound increase. And there are some who it, it's not really that noticeable. But if you're looking at a, a spreadsheet over time, you can really pinpoint, okay, she was on her cycle. And then, and then you, you know, that it's bad data, if, if you will, or, um, and you can get rid of that. And I think that's definitely relevant for somebody who is in a fat loss phase. Um, I also, I, I, I have a, a client that I just, coached for a meet. And that was something that, that we were fairly concerned about because, you know, when it comes to weigh-ins, you need to take that into account. So if that's something that you can predict and then it's, you can account for it. And in, in our case, you know, if she, if she'd been on her period leading right up to the meet, we might've had to do a bit of a water manipulation, but since it was the week before, I was, we didn't have to worry about it because I knew looking at these numbers, that weight's going to come back down. 
So it, it's it's good information to have, especially for somebody who is already tracking their training and tracking their nutrition, tracking their weight, etc. That makes so much sense. Uh, yeah, I've I've only had it once where I, uh, I had a female who was doing a powerlifting meet and they were going to be on uh, their cycle there, but that was more they have some symptoms that wouldn't be great for performance. Essentially, not so much making weight. Is there a method? I don't think we did this, but is there a method um, of taking like an oral contraceptive at a certain time to like delay? So if you know it's coming, rather than maybe if that that is another option, is that something you can do? People often go on oral contraceptives not only for contraception but also to alleviate symptoms um, because when you go on a contraceptive then you're introducing sort of a regular exogenous hormone and that down regulates the the um, endogenous hormone fluctuations so you're not going to experience the the same sort of symptoms typically they can come with other symptoms and so in some cases you might need to experiment until you find the, the right contraceptive for, for you um but that is certainly something that that is common with athletes in terms of sort of skipping the the cycle if you will you're when you're on the pill you no longer have a menstrual period but Typically, they have five or seven days of a inactive hormone pill phase, uh, so or placebo pill, and so that um, it, it, it it once you're on that withdrawal phase, you'll have a withdrawal bleed, and so it it's is mimics a menstrual period. So I think what you're referring to is more people who are on that, and then instead of taking those four or five sugar pills they skip them and go right into the next active hormone phase. And there, there are some less common pills that actually have a, a three-month active hormone phase and then kind of a one-week off, and that re repeats. So that is something that people will use as a strategy just to avoid the inconvenience of having the withdrawal bleed during that the, the period of, of them taking the inactive hormone pill, uh, pills. Perfect. No, it's, uh, I mentioned it. I think I can say it. <laughs> it was good. My girlfriend, we were going on holiday and it's something she used uh, to avoid that happening when we we're on holiday because you know, it would have been inconvenient for that period of time. So uh, I, I don't know this side of things very well, but I've had some experiences that yeah exposed me to knowing things like that. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I I don't want to kind of cross the line in in whether when where this would come off as medical advice, but typically there there aren't really any issues with doing that. Um, but it does kind of throw things off, and so if you if you continue to do that, and then you want to go back to the more regular pattern, it can kind of take some time to adjust. But it's certainly just sort of going back to the the menstrual symptom component of it, that's a, a big reason why people will go on the hormonal contraceptives as well because they can they can alleviate those symptoms and also um, make everything a bit more regular. So if you're somebody who doesn't have a regular cycle, then the the menstrual bleed is really hard to predict and the onset of symptoms is hard to predict. And so often people will go on a hormonal contraceptive just for the the convenience of, of a more regular set of circumstances when it comes to that. 
that makes a and lot of sense. And the hormonal contraceptives is a whole other bag of worms when it comes to the, the training adaptation. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I was going to say, um, I don't know how long um, you've got to kind of talk about this, but I was going to ask if, I think I've seen it spoken about where people will say certain contraceptives will be more or less favorable for hypertrophy, or um, I have very little idea about this. Uh, what do you, I don't know if, yeah, we can jump into this. Um, what kind of is the lay of the land in that regard? It's very complicated, mostly because there's so many different formulations of pill, dose, and type that it's really difficult to study. But essentially, when we look at the literature, it's such a mixed bag. So some papers say, oh, you know, they're slightly superior when it comes to hypertrophy. And some will say, oh, it's they're slightly inferior when it comes to hypertrophy. And they're... There's also a the element of, of the type of synthetic hormone that you have in the pill. So typically they use a synthetic estrogen and a synthetic progesterone. And the type of synthetic progesterone or progestin varies from, from generation to generation. So older pills will use a first generation progestin and the newer pills will use a third or a fourth generation. And the based on that that type of progestin that's included, it can potentially have different quote androgenic properties. And that in some cases has led people to claim that, oh, well, that would be the reason why it would be superior for hypertrophy. Meanwhile, we're talking about extremely low doses of hormones here. Um, and in the late 1980s, the International Olympic Committee actually banned one of these substances because of that this concern that it was androgenic. They reversed that a few months later because obviously there's it's pretty problematic to ban contraceptives for athletes um but when we look at at the dose of the the hormone and the magnitude of the response whether positive or negative there really isn't any suggestion that it would go either way more so that it would be variable just as the response is variable for people who are naturally menstruating or for men. And not to say that if, well, ideally, if you were to do this work, you would start people who are naturally cycling, you train them and see their response, and then you put them all on the same pill, and then you train them and see their response. And, or you do that in reverse, and it would be a, um, a very difficult study to carry out but that's really the way to do it because you want you want to be able to answer it within the person and so if you're comparing one group on contraceptives to one group who's naturally cycling then you're getting a lot of noise in that data because there would be variability regardless of this specific difference so that's why in in my research, for example, I've designed it so that the same person comes in in both phases or on the active pill phase or in during the inactive pill phase or in the follicular phase, in the luteal phase. So then I can compare the response within the same individual and we don't have to be concerned about whether this group just had 
a bunch of higher responders than this other group. And I think that could easily explain why the data is all over the place in the in the contraceptive research. That makes so much sense. Yeah, it's uh, as you referred to previously, like all the data that's available, the, the historical data where it's kind of not useful because of all these confounders, I can completely see where you're coming from here. And I don't know if you have a practical take home for the listener, like follow your kind of doctor's advice or experiment with different kind of uh, pills or contraceptives that work for you. Is there, is there a recommendation you can give? I think when it comes to this conversation, we often forget that the primary purpose of contraceptives is contraception um, and secondarily the alleviation of menstrual symptoms, among other things. And so when, when we're talking about very small degrees to which it might influence athletic performance or muscle growth, I think we need to kind of always come back to the fact that uh, they they serve a much more important purpose and, and the effect is probably going to be negligible, whether it's one way or the other. I do think that if you're on a, a pill that it's giving you a, a variety of unpleasant symptoms, that you should consider speaking with your doctor about switching to a different formulation because we do commonly see that there are some formulations that just work better for some people and, and not others. And so could one of those side effects be how you feel in the gym or may, maybe your your performance or your perceived performance or any of that? Sure. And so on a very individual level, I'd say it's important that you're mindful of how you're feeling, whether it's you're naturally cycling and, and it's just about the, the symptoms around the period, or if you're somebody who decides to start a hormonal contraceptive and then you're kind of feeling that that shift and that adjustment. And I'll also say you need to give it a few months because there can be some sort of adjustment symptoms that will then go away. But the I would approach it from a, an overall kind of human level because you're going to see either this is this is great and i don't really notice anything other than the fact that maybe i don't get menstrual cramps anymore or you might notice a, a variety of symptoms that will influence you day to day and it won't be kind of performance specific and you're not going to notice oh wow you know i'm putting on all this muscle now or i'm losing all this muscle now so i I would first be be um, I would prioritize finding a pill that is is working for you and that isn't giving you symptoms that you weren't experiencing before you started it. Yeah, I think that's such wise advice, and I think the information today has been really, really valuable for the listener. Again, these are topics I don't think are, they've probably been touched on during the podcast at some point, but not as in depth as this. I think you're doing a world of good, particularly for the, the females in this industry, like looking to uh, kind of educate themselves further about these things because it's been far too long that we haven't had that much kind of uh, knowledge about these sort of things. So I want to thank you so much for your work and for being here today. And like I said, hopefully we can get you back on and talk about, I know you've got some other interests as well we can kind of talk about. And if people want to follow along with the work that you're doing, uh, where should they head? I have an Instagram at laurencs1. I should also mention that I'm now writing for the Mass Research Review. And so you can check out my monthly articles in Mass at Mass Research Review. 
And otherwise, I have a, a research gate page if anyone actually wants to read my full papers. But social media is probably the best place to start. Fantastic. I'll make sure that's all linked below. And we are big supporters of uh, the Mass Research Reviewer here at Revive Stronger. Um, so that'll be linked if you want to kind of sign up to that. We're affiliates and strongly affiliated because we really uh, love the work that you guys are doing and everything Lauren's been putting out over there has been fantastic. So yeah, thank you once again, Lauren. I'll make sure that's all linked below. And thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you soon. Losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't though, it's reality and we know how to do it. And we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You will receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the minicut so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The minicut movement is open 24 seven. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together.